If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and share it with a friend. Any school really with a vocational program is pretty unique because the kids basically have two curriculums. It's almost like they're in two schools. Uh, one, of course, is the comprehensive mass uh, DESE standards, and the other are the CTE standards of whatever shop and agricultural program they have, along with shared standards or competencies. So we have like the regular trades, like you think traditional vocational trades, and the ag trades, vet tech, um, horticulture, sustainable horticulture, environmental science. We also have health. We have a health assisting, dental, culinary, cosmetology. I mean, literally everything you can think of for a job, we have something uh, related to that under our roof. The only thing we're really missing, I think, is um, like a, a full media production shop and child care. I think we have most everything else that you can find in the state. Across the United States and around the world, schools are back in session. In the early days of COVID, schools moved online quickly. Now, with a few months off to consider the challenge, some schools are resuming in-person classes, while others are still online. And many districts are offering both options. Every school and every family is handling COVID differently. But regardless, education relies, as it always has, on one all-important factor, the teacher. A single amazing teacher can change the course of a student's life. Meet Jason. He teaches social studies at a vocational tech high school. His students come from a wide range of communities, taking science and technology courses in addition to their regular core content. For the past few years, Jason and his teaching partner Justin have been offering a genocide studies class of their own design. The goal of the course is simple, to help students identify and connect to their own sense of empathy using the teacher's personal family stories as a guide. When we connected back in June, Jason told me about the experience of moving online halfway through a semester, how he and his students handled it, and how it affected their learning. He told me about how the school celebrated this year's senior class in a unique and special way. And he told me when we spoke just a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd, about his approach to teaching social studies and genocide studies to high school students today, about how he sees his students putting those lessons to work, and what he thinks, as a history teacher, of this pivotal moment in American history. This is COVID Stories. I was interviewed a few years ago by the Hessinger Report, which is like an outlet for news uh, for education. And my big quote in it, so to speak, was, um, I really think that our school is changing the mantra of vocational kids can't do regular school. Like you send a kid to a trade school because they can't do regular school. So teach them a trade, they become a productive member of society. I think that's, you know, I'm not going to use any language here, but that's all BS. Our kids, not only can they do school, but they can do it at a high level. Our kids are, like I said, they're taking two curriculums at the same time. And like most of our kids, they, they knock it out of the park. I mean, obviously some kids are going to have challenges and we help them through that. But um, most of our kids have to go on to some two or four year program to advance in their career. Not so much with the trades, although I do encourage every kid I have in the trades, I'm like, go and get an associate's. Learn how to do business because, I mean, the number one reason small businesses fail, COVID aside, is 
lack of, of business management, I tell them, I say, take night classes, you know, work, work during the day, take a couple night classes. Doesn't mean you have to take simply two years to get your associates to take four, but get it. Uh, most of our kids, though, have to go on to a two or four year program to advance in their career, especially kids in the agriculture programs, because those are those are basically science careers. Uh, we have biotechnology, veterinary science. I mean, think about how many years you have to go to be a vet. So vocational education today is not what it was in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s. Um, it's really grown. Technically, we service almost 30 or 40 different districts. We have 17 sending communities, and we also have some adjunct communities. For example, uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, they have a technical high school. So kids who come to our school can't take, like, plumbing, for instance, because it's offered in their home district, but they can take all the ag programs. I've taught everything. I've taught everything from ancient history to American history. Uh, I teach psychology, genocide studies. I kind of do it all. Like my assignments next year, I just got are going to be um, US one, which is Constitution through World War or through you know expansionism and uh, imperialism, and then US two is kind of World War One on. I'm also teaching genocide studies. I was using Google Classroom all year. Um, it's a great way to set up questions, answers, exams, assessments. You can have you know you can have a primary source and have the kids dialogue. One of my assignments that I use for a lot of the primary sources is um, I have the kids do what I call a one-two. Number one, they have to react to what they're reading. And then number two, they have to comment on two people's comments. So we have to, we have this kind of circular questioning going on. So for example, you know, World War II, we talked a lot about, you know, women and minorities, what were their contributions to the war? So we have the you know the 442nd Japanese regiment who per capita had the most battle citations of any uh, regiment in the, the army. And again, we're talking World War II, we're talking a segregated army. So, you know, the kids would read a reflection. I'd ask them a question about that. Like, you're, you're this soldier and you're fighting while people you know are in internment camps. How do you think that either motivates someone to fight harder or does that cause animus? And then we kind of get this circular conversation going. And, you know, one thing I really like to do in my classroom is the idea of, you know, what's the experience of the person? For me, it's not about the big ideas of like war and the nuclear bomb. It's like, what, what's the story of, of the Japanese farmer that, you know, has radiation poisoning? If we look at the real Rosie the Riveter, what was her life experience? And through that, we can tell the stories of history. Doing that in class along with kind of the actual face-to-face -face teaching, like I can kind of bridge that gap. I can do flipped classroom. I can do um, things where the kids are being assessed in real time, you know, exit tickets. So I know that they're, you know, keeping up with their learning. And, you know, if a kid kind of doesn't get, you know, a couple concepts, I can go back. The virtual classroom environment, it just, it's just not, it's, it's not the same kind of animal. So, one thing about teaching high school in the 21st century is that it's really about that, that connection, that engagement. You know, the kids need the human connection. My classroom, particularly, and how we do genocide studies is very Socratic. There's a lot of questions being answered and discussion back and forth and looking at sources. And honestly, doing that in the remote learning setting is very, very difficult. It's very hard to have that 
way of engagement, even using Zoom and Google Meet. It's just, it's, it's not as authentic. And I think things are getting lost in it. I, li- I liked what we did with the time that we had to prepare. But virtual classrooms are just, just it's a difficult medium for, I would say for, for me as a history teacher, where my instruction is very much focused on reacting to the kids and what they, what they reflect on during, during the lesson. Most of the kids that we had this year did really well on remote learning. It was sprung on them very quickly. Um, it was sprung on everyone very quickly, quite frankly. But yeah, they're they're losing on that social connection, and um, psychologically, that's really that's really having an effect on them. My job can be a lot harder than sometimes I think it is. The, the biggest thing I really learned about myself is that sometimes I have to step back and remember that it's not just about that time in the classroom. Sometimes it's really about the the empty space. I'm a musician, I'm a bass player, and I remember listening to an interview with Joe Walsh of the Eagles, and he's not a bass player, he's a guitar player, but uh, he was talking about stuff with uh, Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters did this album, and they said that it's not about the notes you play sometimes, it's about the space between the notes. So what I really found about my teaching during this remote learning experience is I really have to target those questions that I ask the kids or I pose to the kids with the sources and then I have to give them some space and you know whether that space is a day or two days or it's over a you know know, a cycle in our school sometimes the kids need that space to answer those questions a lot of the kids in my classes you know they they basically said you know I've spent I've spent a lot of time either staying home helping my, my parents out with watching my little siblings or you know I'm working I'm working extra hours to help support the household. A lot of our kids' families were hit hard by by the unemployment crisis. It translates into their learning, and and I don't blame this on, or I don't hold any negativity towards it. The kids' priorities should be their their family really during this time. I told them all that. I said you know your your first priority is your family and your health. Just give me a good faith effort. I'm going to design assignments that are accessible. You do what you can when you can. And, and the school was really responsive to that. That was kind of the mantra. Like, since this was sprung on us so quickly, you know, it's what do what you can when you can. As long as I, as a teacher, make sure that what I give them has some real meaning. Like, it's not just busy work to say, look, they did something. Um, as long as it has some real meaning, if those kids give me a good faith effort, I'm happy. I'm really, I'm really happy. And, and during this time, there were a lot of kids that their good faith effort wasn't the best work they could do in general, but it was the best work they could do right now. I still believe every single one of my kids learn stuff and they'll take that with them. It certainly wasn't an ideal situation, but they did the best they could with it. And I'm proud of that. Graduation was, we didn't have a ceremony. We had a parade around campus. There were two events beforehand. We the teachers delivered uh, signs congratulating our seniors to, to all their homes uh, sometime in May. And then very early, uh, very late May, excuse me, we drove their cap and gowns to their house and dropped them off with a tray of macaroni and cheese from the uh, cafeteria. Listen, you know, you say what you want about school lunches. Essex North Shore has got the market cornered on macaroni and cheese. So we delivered mac and cheese and their cap and gowns and some other gifts. And then all the teachers, and I believe it was every single 
person that was around. Uh, the campus was full of teachers, socially distanced, wearing masks. I brought my wife and kid. A lot of people brought their families. We lined the campus roads, and there was a parade that lasted a good, solid 45 minutes of the kids driving around campus, honking, waving. Um, it was it was amazing. I saw kids that I haven't seen since the end of the end of March. And they, they were just, they were so happy to see us. And we were so happy to see them. And, and not to say we, I mean, we obviously talked with them as school was ending. The seniors still had to finish from March to, to the end of May. But I tell you that it was just an amazing thing to see those kids driving around campus. I honestly think that once, I don't want to say when COVID goes away, but once we get a vaccine and it's not the same concern anymore, I want to have a parade like that every single year. I would love that. Um, it would obviously mean something different because, because obviously COVID, but, um, I would love to see that. It's just so fun. I'm so proud of those kids for working hard through all this. The biggest challenge I've ever seen kids have to take, um, as a group and they nailed it. You know, teaching social studies, obviously, um, in the age of, um, the Trump administration can be very difficult. My job is not to tell the kids what to think. It's about making good choices and looking at sources. It's about, okay, let's look at this in context. I, I tell the kids to look at look at Herbert Hoover as an example. You know, he was president right before the Great Depression. He was a businessman who never was a politician, and we looked at parallels there. Obviously, if something's wrong, like if, if we were in class and and we were watching the George Floyd video, that's every kid would look at that and say, murder. You know, they, they would identify that as something that is not right. So a lot of what we do in teaching genocide studies is not only the history of genocide and, and reading the uh, testimony of survivors and, and perpetrators and bystanders. We, we really try to cover every aspect. But um, we're really trying to teach the kids to be more aware of not just the end game of genocide, which is the death part of it, but like really the warning signs and what's happening. The idea of, you know, tyranny and authoritative government and, you know, suppression of the media and learning to read sources that if they have a bias, you try to find a source that comes from a different perspective. You compare the notes and then you really try to find, you know, the actual facts of what happened. And it may be from source A, it may be from source B, or it might not be either. And really, we're, we're trying to teach the kids how to be aware of these warning signs and look for these uh, human rights injustices all over the world. Um, and being aware of that, hopefully they can be agents for change. So any type of social justice issue is is challenging, period. And, and I really believe that teaching in the humanities require you to also teach empathy, like what empathy really means. So... You know, while for most students, Anne Frank is the face of the Holocaust for them, I try to, it's it's hard for a lot of, I mean, they feel bad for Anne Frank, oh, this horrible thing happened to this poor girl. Um, but I introduced them to my family that died in the Holocaust. I introduced them to my grandmother uh, who survived. She came out of Nazi Germany in early 39, but her parents and brother, along with relatives, were killed at the camp, specifically Sobibor in um, Eastern Europe. So... Once they put that face of, of empathy like on their teacher, like, hey, this is someone who directly knows the consequences of this, it starts to really build that empathy. Again, you know, it's, it's not that these kids don't have those feelings. It's really just a question of finding it under things like political animus or different priorities or values. So 
if, if I can indulge for a second, I have a teaching partner, a man named Justin Bilton. Uh, we created the class together almost four years ago. One of my kids, um, or one of our kids, well, was an equine science major, and she took genocide studies her senior year as an elective. She did one year of equine science and decided to switch colleges and majors, and she ended up going from UMass to Merrimack and is now studying law, and she wants to become a human rights attorney. She came and testified with Justin and I at the Genocide Studies Education Bill public hearing in October of 2019. We actually testified before representatives from the Mass Legislature about the need to teach genocide. And she talked about her journey. And I tell you, like my, my, I still get a little worked up over it. It's, it's an amazing thing to feel like as an educator, you have that much influence. You know, once kids graduate, um, sometimes, you know, we, we follow each other on social media, mostly so they can see pictures of my kid. But I see, I see the, uh, I see kids going to protests. I see kids, you know, talking about what's going on in the world, especially right now with, with, you know, the, the, the murder, quite frankly, murder of George Floyd. You know, you, you hear a lot about protests, about the negative parts of it, the looting, the rioting, and stuff like that. These aren't kids that are doing that. I know these kids. Some of these kids I've known since they were they're 14 years old, and now they're 22, 23. And I know they're there for the right reasons, and I know what they're doing is, is um, they're really trying to heal this world. It's always horrible when a death has to occur to have something happen. That being said, seeing the protests, the, 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 the stuff aside with the, with the looting and the rioting, that stuff aside, seeing these protests that have been going on for weeks and seeing that, that people are starting to think about reevaluating, you know, funding of police, not defunding police. I don't, you know, I don't want to get on to that topic, but, you know, reevaluating where funds are being, being allocated to, to help intervene before crime becomes an issue that police have to deal with sending social workers to mental health calls. I think that despite all the, the horribleness that's happened within the last couple months with COVID and the last month with systematic racism in America, I, I think that people are, not the government, but people in America are starting to move the country into a better direction. I think the people are really, are really exercising that First Amendment right I get into discussions with people about, you know, destroying property and, and stuff like that. I can, I can definitely have empathy for, for all the, the anger and frustration. I don't know what that is because I didn't grow up as a person of color. But I can definitely empathize with, with that pain. Uh, I don't agree with people's private property being destroyed per se, but I can certainly understand why, if that comes out of something with anger, that that's happening. But I really do, I have a... a I don't want to call it a feeling. I just feel that maybe this is the turning point. And I know people have said that about Trayvon Martin. People have said that about all these these deaths of, of African-American men at the hand of, hands of police. I think this is different. I think that eight minutes and 46 seconds has really been transformative to, to watch a man die at the hands of, uh, of a person that's supposed to protect them. Uh, I think it's really transformative. I really do think it's a it's it's a moment in history, like the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, that that you know will be will be looked at as a, a transformative moment in American history.
This podcast features the stories of real people. To learn more about Jason and his journey, visit our website, covidstoriespodcast.com. You'll find show notes for each episode with ways to directly support the people featured here and the passions that fuel their stories. COVID Stories is a self-supported podcast. It's produced and edited by me, Nathan J. Vaughn. To learn more about how you can support this project or to submit your own story to be featured in a future episode, visit our website. The address, again, is covidstoriespodcast.com. This is COVID Stories. Thanks for listening.